The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, verses 18 through 29, and I'm going to be working through this, this letter to the church at Thyatira. About seven or eight years ago, we were at the church picnic, and uh, we were blessed to have some really talented medical people in our, in our church. We had a great day at the health fair yesterday, so grateful for all those of you that gave your, your time and, and for the way that we can use the knowledge that God's given us to bless the community. But that day at the church picnic, it was specifically focused on my wife, Christy. Um, she had had some neurological symptoms and she had had an x-ray taken, an MRI also, of her neck. And uh, some of our church members looked at the results and uh, saw a, a necking down of her, she had degenerative disc, disc disease and a necking down of her spinal column, so it looked like an hourglass. And it led us to take very seriously what was going on in her body. And uh, we went to the neurologist, and the neurosurgeon, and he gave this uh, diagnosis, this prediction of the future. <clears throat> he said, 100% chance of total paralysis without in, uh, surgery. I'm like, that's the kind of uh, prognosis that you listen to. 100% chance of total paralysis if she doesn't have corrective surgery. Obviously, we got uh, corrective surgery and then another one after that, and the Lord protected her ability to walk. And I'm thinking this morning about the gift that we have here in Durham, frequently called the city of medicine, um, of the technology that we have to give those kinds of, of um, predictions, progno prognoses, and then the therapies that would tie up with it. We're, we're here in the city of medicine or right near the Research Triangle Park, and we have all kinds of non-invasive diagnostic tests, like x-rays and MRIs and ultrasounds, and you have heart caths and EEGs and EKGs and all kinds of things that... They don't have to cut us open to tell us what's going on deep inside of us. And it could be something very serious, life-threatening. Even more than that, uh, a brain tumor that if it's not treated could result in death. Or it could be a blockage in a major artery that needs to be addressed by a cardiologist. Or it could be something a little less serious, but there's been some pain and some other things. And, and through these non-invasive... Um, techniques they can find out what's wrong and the doctors can know how to treat us psalm 139 begins with these amazing words O lord you have searched me and you know me you know when i sit and when i rise you perceive my thoughts from afar so that's a comprehensive knowledge that the Lord has of you. Everything. He knows when you sit and when you rise. He knows your actions, what you're doing all the time. And not only that, he knows your mind and your heart behind those actions. Everything. 
Then at the end of the psalm, the psalmist invites that very thing that God is doing anyway. But he's saying, I want you to do this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. And try me and see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So as we come to this letter to the church at Thyatira, we're coming to a very serious topic. We're coming to the topic of of secret sin. A, A sin that's in the heart of individuals in the church. It's not obvious. It's not open, easy to see. And we're confronted in this text with a Lord and Savior. The same one who David was talking about in Psalm 139 who searched him and knew him so many centuries ago. And he says the exact same thing to the church of Thyatira. I am he who searches hearts and minds. And I will give to each of you according to what you have done. He has eyes of blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze. And he's looking at us and searching us. And he knows us. Obviously the issue of secret sexual sin is a very troubling issue. It's not the kind of thing I would choose if I were a topical preacher to say I think that's what I want to preach on. But I can tell you from pastoral experience it's very much what I need to preach on among other things. It is a serious problem in the life of the church today. Secret sexual sin. It's not a minor problem. It's a major problem. Many of you are trying to run your Christian race with weights dragging behind you. Like you're running a marathon and you've got cinder block uh, weights uh, tied to a belt around your waist. And and you're making very little progress and you're exhausted and it's discouraging to you. And you are assassinating your assurance. And you're probably wondering to some degree if you're even a Christian. Maybe some of you are in that category because of what you're doing in secret. And I yearn and I've prayed over the last several weeks, but especially the last number of hours, I've prayed that this would be a day of you being set free. That you would, like Hebrews 12 says, since you're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and especially one witness in particular, this holy Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burning bronze, since, since you're living your life in front of him, that you're going to lay aside every weight. And the sin that so easily entangles you. And you're going to run with endurance this race that's marked out in front of you. That's what I want to see happen to you. And more than that, to the whole church, not every one of you is in this category. Even in the letter it says, now to the rest of you who are not involved in this sin. We in our church covenant, we have promised to watch over one another in brotherly love. We promise to care about what's really happening in each other's lives. And so this is a call to get involved, men with men and women with women, in discipleship and parents with their kids at levels probably you're not yet, but need to, to protect one another from sexual sin. So it's a a serious message. And my desire here is to fill you as best as I can with a mixture, uh, a helpful, I hope, a, a right mixture of fear and hope. Fear and hope. And I don't know what you individually need the most right now. Some of you really need fear. And this this scripture will give it to you, should give it to you if you listen to it. 
There's a holy fear that leads to holy living. We should fear sin. We should fear Jesus' reaction to sin. That should be something we should fear. But we should not fear as those who have no hope. There are promises made. If we listen and if we repent, if we overcome, we will be richly blessed. And so I want to mediate those things to you. And I don't know what you need. I don't know by your faces. That's what we're talking about, secrets. And I don't know what's happening. But my desire is that the word of God would be unleashed in your life to set you free. That's my desire. So we come to this letter and Jesus begins in verse 18 with a self-description. Look what he says. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. This is an awesome description. As with all of these seven letters, this is an incredible thing. What's happening here? Jesus is speaking to the church. And he's describing himself. And he begins here by emphasizing his deity. These are the words of the Son of God. His open appeal to deity emphasizes his right right to judge and speak these words to us. He has the right to do this. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He is your creator. He will be your judge. He has the right to talk to you like this. Usually in these seven letters, Jesus identifies himself to the church by some aspect of the vision that we had, uh, that John had in, in Revelation 1. But here it's actually a little bit different. He uses a term here, the Son of God, that you don't find in Revelation 1. He actually there is described as one like a son of man. But this is Jesus who is God the Son. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And he has a message of purifying power and judgment to give to this secretly sinning church. And he describes also his own eyes. Eyes like blazing fire. Sense of the holiness of Jesus by which he gets this information. The eyes are his source of information of knowing who you are, what you're doing. And the fire, it reminds us that our God is a consuming fire. It points to his holiness. His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrong. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 13. Also Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now the sinners, the secret sinners, the ones that are learning Satan's so-called deep secrets in Thyatira, they think no one sees me, no one knows. No one knows what I'm doing. But Jesus has eyes of blazing fire. It says in Jeremiah 23, verse 24, Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. At the end of Revelation, when Jesus comes to destroy his enemies, he uses this exact same description. Revelation 19, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. That's the way he deals with his enemies. He also 
in this uh, letter describes his feet as glowing like burnished bronze, like it was heated in a furnace. This brings uh, the terrifying image to mind in Revelation 19.15. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So this is a, a terrifying picture that we have here. So that's how he describes himself. How does he commend this church at Thyatira? He says in verse 19, I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and your perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first. This is really a very impressive list. He talks about their deeds. They're working hard. Their deeds flow from love and faith. So unlike it seems the church in Ephesus, they haven't forsaken their first love. They love him and they love one another. And their faith, they, they have a genuine faith in Christ at least the ones he's addressing toward the end of the letter. So as a whole, he speaks to the believers, the ones who are living out their faith. So by their, invis- their, their vision, their, their sight of the invisible spiritual world, that's what faith is, the eyesight of the soul, by which they see Jesus as Savior, they see the future, the coming judgment, they, they have a genuine faith. They're not dead in their transgressions and sins. And, and their service and their perseverance, they're working hard. They're serving one another. They've got servant hearts. They're persevering. So we don't know much about the persecutions they might have endured there in Thyatira, but probably of the same sort that were going on in these other seven cities, the other, the other six of the cities. And so they were persevering. And he says very strikingly, they're doing more now than they did at first. So there's actually a principle of growth and development in their lives. Like it says in 2 Peter 1, if these qualities are yours in increasing measure. So there's a sense of growth. Living things grow. You're doing more deeds than you did at first. Seems hard to imagine a church with such a comprehensive sentence of commendation from Jesus Christ could have a fatal flaw at its heart. I mean, every, on the surface, everything looks good. That's what makes all of this really so scary, frankly. It's so vital for us 21st century churchgoers in America to hear this and to look beyond the surface. A toleration of sexual sin and a secret pattern of illicit sexual activities effectively nullifies all of these good things. And that's the problem here is the issue of toleration. So that's what he presses in. That's how he judges the church look at verse 20 nevertheless I have this against you I can't read that without just stopping and saying do you not feel the weight of that how serious that is that Jesus would have something against you I mean let that press into your heart I don't want Jesus to have anything against me I'm not claiming that we can be sinless and perfect in this life I'm not saying that but I yearn for it don't you Don't you hunger and thirst that Jesus would have nothing against you? I mean, start with an hour. Oh, Lord, I'd like to live my life for one hour that you would have nothing against me. My heart and my actions, just that I would live that kind of life for the next hour by the Spirit. But he says this, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. So there's a deadly danger from within here. It's not like Smyrna where there was the external persecution coming from the authorities. And they were going to get thrown in prison. Here it's coming from within. Now there's a worldly influence certainly. But it's a, it's a, heart, a heart wound, a, a cancer within. 
And the problem is the church is tolerating it. So, again, we're speaking to Christians. So it could be that there are individual Christians that are dabbling in this sin and they are tolerating that within themselves. And they think it's okay, but it's not. But then, even those that are not involved, they're tolerating those that are. And they're not performing church discipline. They're not doing what they need to do to keep the church pure. So it's the issue of toleration. Now, that's really hard for many in 21st century America to hear. We celebrate tolerance. We love tolerance. We, we, are, we, we get excited about the, the unbelievable levels of evil and wickedness that we can tolerate and be fine with. And, and it doesn't seem to move the needle and we're kind of chill and cool about it all. That is not God's plan for the church. We are called on to be the light of the world. We are called on to be salt in a corrupted world. And if the salt loses its saltiness, it's worthless. We, we have to care and not tolerate so the threat here is sexual immorality of a secret hidden sort. And it's taught, it seems, in this church by a woman prophetess. And she was alluring and enticing some of Jesus' blood-bought children into immorality. They were being led astray by her. Now this sexual immorality was undoubtedly linked to pagan religion. The old patterns of pagan religion. It was just part of the way that they worshipped back then. And, and, but she had added some twists to it with Satan's so-called deep secrets. And so it was a concoction of pseudo-Christian, pseudo-pagan mess that she was teaching to uh, these servants. Similar, I think, to what was going on in Pergamum, the church last week that we looked at. The Balaamite slash Nicolaitan, similar to that. It was a combination, I think, of of Christian, uh, Christian doctrine that the grace of God will cover all your sins and, and then the, the Greek dualism where it doesn't matter what you do with your body leading to license. It's a license teaching, I think, ultimately. They turn the grace of God into license for immorality. Now, Christianity cuts across all this. It actually very much matters what you do with your body. And it very much matters what's going on in your mind and your heart. Everything matters. It says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 5, 3 through 5, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. It's very clear. And then again in Galatians 6. There's so many verses I could use on this. But Galatians 6, 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A person reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. All right, so who is this woman Jezebel? Jezebel the prophetess. Well, she's identified here, that woman Jezebel. She, I believe, was a real woman in Thyatira. But I think the name Jezebel was symbolic. Kind of like a prophetic name. The woman of Thyatira, quote, calls herself a prophetess. So she actually wasn't a prophetess. She was not called by God. She took that honor and that office on herself. It was not given her by God, not by the Holy Spirit. Now we should understand back in those days, debatable whether the office or the gift of prophecy continues to this day. I'm not getting into that. But back then, clearly, there were prophets and prophetesses. And there were godly prophets and there were godly prophetesses. This woman was not a godly prophetess. She was a 
false prophetess. She called herself one. And beyond that, she was teaching both men and women this false doctrine. So she was arrogating to herself a teaching role that Paul forbids women in 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over men. She must be silent. So God has not given to women the role to teach men in in an official way in the life of the church. But she took that on herself. But even worse, it was false teaching. She was leading them badly and wrongly. Why does Jesus call her Jezebel? Well, it harkens back to a very well-known story. A woman who literally lived in, the, in the, the days of the kingdom of Israel. And she was a wicked woman, the daughter of a pagan king, who married King Ahab, who was a very weak-willed and ultimately wicked man. And she specifically led Israel into patterns of, of false religion, the Baals and the Ashtoreth, the fertility uh, religions, uh, that similar to this involved sexual immorality and worshiping false gods and goddesses. And so Jezebel did all this. She personally funded out of the coffers of the king 850 prophets of Baal. While she hunted down and killed all of the true prophets. Remember how Elijah who lived at that time thought he was the only prophet left. That's who Jezebel was. She manipulated Ahab to do all kinds of evil things. And when Ahab wanted to take Naboth's vineyard, but was too weak to do anything about it, was crying in his bed, what kind of man is this? She like, like, I'll take care of it. And she took care of it. And she orchestrated false witnesses who conspired to have Naboth murdered. And he took possession of the vineyard. And Elijah predicted that dogs would drink up Ahab's blood in that very place. And then later he predicted the same thing would happen to Jezebel. And it did. She was a thoroughly wicked woman. Probably a witch in in any definition. I mean, a a cultic side to her. Evil. Well, that's a repulsive story. And the revulsion that we feel as we hear it is actually completely appropriate. And Jesus uses that title to talk about this woman in the church at Thyatira. And she was leading them into secret rituals. We don't know what this was, but look at verse 24. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. So in secret, they did disgusting things with their bodies. In secret, they eat meats, sacrificed to detestable idols. In secret, they learned deeper words of knowledge and maybe proto, like early Gnostic practices and all that. So that there is all this kind of secret ritual going on. And the church was tolerating it. Tolerating it. And so Jesus has to bring a terror of impending judgment on them. We have got to heed warnings in scripture. It's part of our faith to be convicted. Not just filled with the assurance of hope for. But convicted. Like in a court of law. In reference to our sins. Faith does that. And so we heed warnings. Warnings are for us. They're for the elect. The non-elect will not heed the warnings. We do. We heed warnings. So what does he say? He's already identified himself as the son of God and whose eyes are like blazing fire. Now he shows how terrifying he can be. Look at verse 21 through 23. He says this. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. 
then all the churches will know, that includes us, that all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will give to each person according to what he has done. Look at the beginning in verse 21. I have given her time to repent of her immorality. I think if you are right now trapped in a pattern of secret sin, these could be some of the scariest words that you could ever hear. It's like, listen to just tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. There's a certain time that Jesus has allotted for you. And that's finite. Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's a certain amount of time, there's an opportunity that Jesus is giving for you to repent. We don't know how long it is. He doesn't owe it to anybody. Keep that in mind. This is all grace. He could strike us dead the moment we commit sin. Immediately. Your next sin in this area could immediately, instantly be your last. And God would not be unjust. The wages of sin is death. But he's gracious. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He gives time. And so there's this clock. And he controls it. He doesn't. He can give you a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade. We don't know. But he controls it. And he is waiting for you to repent. Now, Jezebel had her time had run out. There's no chance for her now. She's done. And so he's going to kill her by a severe disease. She refused to repent. Now, again, remember I said I yearn to give you a mingling of, of, of fear and hope. I have no hope to give to people who will not repent. Evangelical churches have no right to give hope to anybody that doesn't repent. Whether in reference to the big picture of the gospel or individual sin. We have no hope to give people who don't repent. Now, people think that just because God hasn't done anything yet, Jesus hasn't done anything yet, that he doesn't care, or his standards have changed. Or No, that's not true. Just because nothing's happened yet doesn't mean that God's lowered his standards. Isaiah 42, 14, he said this, For a long time I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. And then Isaiah 57, 11, Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? And again, Psalm 50, verse 21, These things you have done, and I kept silent. You thought I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. So don't misunderstand the patience of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 through 6, tells you what the patience of God is about. It says there in Romans 2, 4 through 6, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So instead of using the time wisely, redeeming the time, instead all you're doing is storing up more and more wrath and judgment if you're truly, in the end, an unbeliever. She was unwilling. And so this word of judgment comes, verse 22 and 23. I will cast her on a bed of suffering... And I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead unless they repent of their ways. So he says he's going to cast her on a bed of suffering. This is some kind of dread disease. 
I mean, the wicked King Herod in the New Testament, his bowels came out. It was just a terrible way to die. It's ironic because she was used to being cast on a bed of pleasure. So there's a kind of a justice in being cast on a bed of suffering. And he's not going to just go after her, but after her children. Now, don't think that those are the biological children. I think those are her disciples, those that are following her. That have been following in this secret religion of sex and pleasure. He's giving them, in the letter, effectively a little more time to repent. And, but they will die if they don't repent. And then in verse 23 he says, Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. So Jesus knows our minds and our hearts. Again and again in the Gospels, when Jesus in his days on earth, he would read people's minds. He would say to Simon the host, he said, Simon thought in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman was touching him, that she's a a sinner. And the text says, Jesus answered, Simon, I have something to say to you. I mean, that's a bit unnerving. Why do you think these thoughts in your hearts, Jesus said. Or he said in John 5, I know you, I know you do not have the love of God in your hearts. It says in John 2, he knew all men and he didn't need anyone's testimony about man. He knows what's in. He knows our minds and our hearts. He searches them. And that's actually part of the sanctification process. That's where Psalm 139, 23, 24 comes in. Do it, Lord. Search me and show me who I am. Show me how much I need a Savior. That kind of person is not going to get struck dead. That kind of person is going to be progressively delivered and saved and become fruitful. It says, search me. I want to be holy. I want to be pure. I want to be delivered. I want to be set free. I'm not refusing to repent. But Jesus is the one who's able to do this. And he says, I will repay each of you according to your deeds. We are not justified by works, but we will be judged by works. We will be evaluated, if that's a better word for you. Assessed, identified by our works. That will happen. All he has to do is look at the fruit. He knows the tree. Make a tree good, its fruit will be good. He alone can make the evil tree good. He has that power to do that. And then he looks at the fruit. He just knows whether you're a Christian or not based on the fruit. It's a consistent teaching. Romans 2, 6 through 8. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give to them eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. It's very plain. It's taught again and again. Now, sometimes that judgment comes early. In the case of Jezebel and her unrepentant followers, the death penalty came. No further warning, they died under Christ's just word. So, what does Christ command the church? First, hold fast to purity. Do not tolerate sin. Sin is not okay. It's deadly. It metastasizes. It's poisonous. We want all of it gone. We hate it. Now, we know we're all Romans 7 sinners struggling every day. The very thing we hate, we do. And the very thing we, we want to do, we do not do. We understand that. Churches are for sinners. But if individual members are known to be committing these kinds of sins, and they are confronted and they will not repent, they must be excommunicated. It's clear teaching. In 1 Corinthians 5, that church also had a problem with sexual sin. There was a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, his stepmother probably. And the church was proud and didn't do anything about it. And so very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, expel them, get rid of them, sever the tie so that everyone in the community around may know that you do not tolerate this kind of wickedness. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and following, I have written you in my letter not to associate 
with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of the world, but the one who calls himself a Christian and yet is immoral and other sins are listed there too. With such a man, he says, do not even eat. What business is it of mine, Paul says there, to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So Christ calls on the pure in Thyatira to do their duty. Verse 24 and 25. Now to the rest of you in Thyatira, I, to you who do not hold to her teaching, have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets. I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. Hold on. Don't get sucked in. Don't get, don't get drawn into this wickedness. And don't tolerate it. He doesn't impose extra burdens. I think, I don't know exactly what that means, but it may mean he doesn't in any way press them toward asceticism in opposite reaction to this, the license. There's license and, and legalism. He's not, I'm not saying forbid marriage. A man should not touch a woman at all ever like the Shakers did. That was a weird cult where, you know, no children, I guess, except converted children. I'm not sure what child would want to become a shaker. But at any rate, that was just a weird cult, forbidding marriage. And Paul talks in Colossians about those that forbid marriage. That's an extreme burden. I'm not laying that burden on you. Enjoy sexual relationship within marriage, covenant marriage. I'm not not pushing you to something you can't do. But hold fast to what you have until I come. Fight the good fight of faith. Run this race with endurance until you cross that finish line. Hold on. And if you do, look at the rewards, verse 26 through 28. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. So I think that means we participate in his second coming glory. Might relate to rulership in the millennium. At least, I think, finally, ultimately, relates to positions of authority in the new heavens and the new earth. Sharing in the authority of Jesus. And I will also give him the morning star. Which is a, kind of the, the star that, that is the precursor to dawn. So I'm, if you will overcome this sin. If you will conquer. I will give you. And the morning star Balaam actually called Jesus. A star rising in Jacob. A morning star that's Jesus. I will give you a sense of the coming glory of the full bright You're going to have a sense of how glorious it's going to be when we're in the new heaven, new earth, and there won't be any sin at all. I'll give you a foretaste of heaven. Applications. This letter pleads with sinners to come to Christ. Do you not see it? We have had in the water baptism today, Charlotte's baptism, a testimony of the gospel, how God sent his son. He died for sinners like you and me, that if you repent... You know yourself that you're not a Christian, but you came in here today to hear this message. Maybe you are trapped in some kind of sexual sin, but you've never known Christ. God sent Jesus, the Son of God, to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. He'll set us free. He has the power to set sinners free and to forgive all of our sins, past, present, future. By simple faith. Just trust in Him. Say, I know I'm a sinner. I know you're the Son of God. You died for sinners. I'm trusting in you to be my Savior. And you will be set free. But to you Christians, I want to say this. First, I just want to lay this out for those of you, I don't know who you are, but those of you that are struggling with secret sin, especially sexual sin. 
I'm just pleading with you to flee sexual immorality. That's the verb given here. Flee. Flee it. I'm worried about how super saturated our world is with sexual images these days. I'm worried about internet pornography. I'm worried about the development step by step from the red light district to, you know, houses of ill repute beyond that to the VCR where you could rent porn and bring it right into your home to then streaming or satellite to the point where, listen, it just smartphones, Wi-Fi, constant access. The need for strength in this area has never been greater. The need to understand what Jesus means when he says, gouge out your right eye if it's causing a sin, gouge it out. Cut off your right hand. If you cannot use your smartphone without sinning, then get rid of it. There are terrible statistics about internet pornography. I'm not going to read them to you, but they're, they're sad. I'm especially worried about teenagers. Statistics show that 90% of children from ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn already in their life. 90%. The largest consumers of pornography are boys aged 12 to 17. 70% of men ages 18 to 34 visit a porn site in a typical month. 10 to $14 billion spent annually... On this, in this country on pornography. One in six women struggle with porn addiction. And the church is not immune. The statistics are terrible about how the church is doing in this area. And Jesus, for some of you, you're on a clock now. You didn't know perhaps before you came in here, but Jesus is giving you time to repent. You don't know how much longer you'll have. So if you are ensnared in this pattern of sexual immorality, I want to commend um, a book I've mentioned many times before. If any individual comes and confesses this kind of sin to me and we talk, I begin by repentance. That's what he's calling. He calls on them to repent. So Thomas Watson's The Doctrine of Repentance gives us six aspects of repentance. You need all six Sight of sin, sorrow for sin, confession of sin, shame for sin, hatred of sin, and turning from sin. That's what repentance is. That's what he's calling on this church to do. That's what he's calling on you to do if you're trapped in this sin. So first, sight of sin. See it with eyes of faith. See it as it will look on judgment day to you. See it as Jesus sees it now. See it. Secondly, sorrow for sin. Grieve, mourn, and wail. James chapter 4. I mentioned it last week. Mentioned it again this week. Grieve over it. Maybe you're not the crying type. Maybe you should be the crying type. Let it break your heart. The Holy Spirit is grieved. If you're a child of God, indwelt by the Spirit, and you're involving yourself in this, the Spirit is weeping over you, in you. You need to weep with Him. And He'll lead you back to sunshine and light and joy and fruitfulness. So grieve. Don't skip it. Grieve. Thirdly, confess your sin. Tell God what you did, what you are doing. Tell him the story. He already knows. Get down on your knees, get alone, close the door, and tell him what you are doing, what you have done. And as you do, be specific. Give it its biblical name. Speak of its wickedness. Aggravate the thing, as the Puritans would say. Talk about it a lot in your prayer to God of confession. Don't minimize it. Lord, you know, I did a little thing. Don't do that. Go deep. You want the whole tumor out. Confess it. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But you need to confess that sin. Shame for sin. So many people think this is inappropriate for Christians ever to feel shame. I don't understand that. I don't understand why you would even think that that's true. Jesus has set me free from all... Listen, to me, shame for sin is simpler, is similar to, sorry, pain from physical fire. Do you think any of us is going to need pain from fire in heaven? No, I'm telling you, you won't feel any pain in heaven. And I tell you this, this is awesome. You won't feel any shame in heaven either. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. You will have no shame in heaven, but you need it now. And you need pain now to keep you from playing with fire. So you should feel a burn inside you. How could I do this to Jesus? How could I do this to my family? How could I do this to my church? You should feel that feeling. And if you don't want to call it shame, because Jesus has set you free from all shame, I understand that. Call it, make up your own word. But let it include a burning negative emotion about the recent history of what you've done. Whatever you want to call that. English, we call it shame. So I I had a very painful discussion with a woman who had been sexually abused as a child. And she could not accept this teaching from me. She said, Jesus has set me free from shame. I put all my shame on Jesus. I don't have any shame. It's like, I don't know what you should feel for sins you're actually committing. Other than this. Shame is helpful. It keeps us from doing it anymore. And then hatred of sin. It should burn with hatred for this. Jesus hates it. Psalm 97.10, let him who is righteous hate evil. Hate it. This is not a mild thing. We have a visceral reaction to this. And then turn from it. Stop doing it. Make a U-turn. Everybody knows that U-turn, that's what repentance is. So just stop doing it. Like, well, pastor, it's not just stop. This is a habit. This is an addiction. This is a pattern in my life. Well, I understand that, but instantaneous righteousness in habitual areas is possible for the genuine Christian. You don't have to have a coasting. You don't have to coast to a stop here. You are not a slave to sin. You don't ever need to sin in this area again. Tell the next temptation, I'm dead to that sin. But alive, Christ Jesus. I don't need to give in to that. I'm going to kill it immediately. I don't need a coasting time. I can stop immediately this sin. Now, I'm not preaching perfectionism here. I know you're going to have to fight. The Bible knows you're going to have to fight. But you need to fight. And if you're not fighting, you're not a Christian. It's that simple. Romans 8, 13 and 14 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God, these are the children of God. And they're the only ones that are. So the Spirit leads you into battle. John Owen's mortification gives us how to do it. I just sum it down to this. I I don't have time to do like all the personal counseling I would do, which I've done for years now with guys when I get together and talk about this. But my strategy is, is this. Death by starvation. Surround the sin and starve it to death. Let it be a full day since you last violated your conscience in this area. And then let it be two. And then let it be a week. And then let it be a month. And then a year. And little by little, the gravitational pull will get weaker and weaker. It'll never fully go away. You've got to be vigilant the rest of your life. But it'll get weaker and weaker. Death by starvation. 
Now, I've been mostly speaking with the last minute or so. I wanna, I've been spe speaking to directly to indiv individuals struggling with secret sin. Now I want to speak to the whole church. I want to speak to the help givers, the counselors, the disciplers. If someone comes to you and they're in this, or you're seeking out, you men with men, women with women, seeking out discipleship relationship, you're like, what do I do? First of all, ask about this area. Do you, are you struggling in this area? Is this a weak area for you? Talk to them. Ask about it. If someone confesses this struggle, give them a battle plan. Go with them to Watson's Doctrine of Repentance. You can download it for free, public domain, online. Go through the six things I just went through with you. Give them the strategy of death by starvation. Get accountable with them on what they're doing with, their, with the internet. What, how do they get the, uh, the temptations into their lives? Tell them to rely on the Holy Spirit, not on themselves. That they're leaning on the Spirit, praying the Spirit, getting closer to the Spirit than ever before. By the Spirit, they're going to put to death these things. Mingle with them fear and hope. Read over this letter to them. Say, do you understand that Jesus can kill you for this? Do you understand he has the power to do it? He has the right to do it. But he also can graciously give you time. Don't play with this anymore. So give them fear, but then give them hope. If you confess your sins, he's going to forgive you and cleanse you. And he's going to be mighty in your life. And pray for them. My final word is to parents. Parents, especially of young people, teens and all that, please don't make any assumptions about what's going on with your kids' smartphones or anything like that. I've even addressed social media and actual sins committed with other teens. You need to get involved probably more than you are with your kids' use of, of technology. Pray for them. Ask them questions. Fight for them. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to study this sobering letter to the church at Thyatira. We want to be faithful to the message. And God, I pray that you just set your children free here. Like Charles Wesley put it, he breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. Lord, you've already canceled the sin. The, the, the debt has been paid. But now it's got a certain strange power over us. Break that power. Help us to live holy lives. Help us to be discipling each other. Men with men and women with women. Help us to be as pure as you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.